In this episode of Tell Me a Story, we continue the book Precious Time by Erica James. Clara and Ned have set off on their adventure in Winnie the campervan. They arrive in Deaconsbridge and we learn more of some of the local characters, Gabriel Liberty of Mermaid House and his son Jonah, and Archie Merriman and his mother Bessie. We also discover the reason Clara has chosen this particular town as a surprise for Ned. Chapter 6 With no class before lunch, Jonah decided to bunk off school. He pulled on his jacket and took the stairs two at a time. At the bottom, pressed against the lockers in a slobbering face-washing clinch, he found Tim Allerton wrapped around Shazzy Butler. They hadn't heard him coming, so he stood perfectly still, just long enough to induce in them the right level of embarrassment when they noticed him. He gave a discreet little tap on the locker beside them. <clears throat> they sprang apart, which wasn't easy given the tangle of arms and legs. Assuming a deadpan expression, he said, on the basis that by now you've fully explored each other's dental work, perhaps you'd be so good as to find your way to whatever lesson you should be attending. You know how I value your input as regards helping the school to sprint up the league tables. He strode off, leaving them to wipe themselves down. Outside in the car park, he opened the resting door of his J-Reg Ford Escort, wondering, as he always did, why he bothered to lock it. Half the kids he taught at Deaconsbridge High, or Dick High, as its inmates affectionately referred to it, would have it open without the aid of a key in seconds flat. He turned right out of the school gates and took the lower moor road towards the centre of town, passing a dismal housing estate and an even uglier industrial complex. Back in the early 1970s, liberal town planners had been assiduously fair with their unimaginative architectural handouts and had given Deaconsbridge High the same ugly status as its immediate neighbours. At roughly the same time as decimalisation had made its mark on the country, the evils of cheap, flat-roofed urbanisation had hit Deaconsbridge. Since then, and in the last decade when restoration had become the watchword, Money had been lavished on the small town centre so that it might compete with rival tourist attractions like Castleton and Buxton. But the outlying areas had received no such philanthropic gestures. Occasionally there were calls for a bypass since the hordes of lucrative trippers had been successfully drawn to the town but the seasonal density of traffic didn't yet warrant such outlandish expenditure. And it was just as well that the traffic was so light as Jonah was in a hurry. In the centre of the town, he joined the one-way system, drove along the war memorial end of the market square, then up towards Hollow Edgemoor. He was going to see his father, and had planned it this way deliberately. With only an hour and a half available to him, he would be able to say what he needed to say, then get out. Direct and to the point, that's what he had to be. Above all else, he must not flinch at his father's response which would, of course, be of the ballistic variety. Many times he had witnessed and been on the receiving end of one of his father's furious dressing downs, and on this occasion he was preparing himself to be stripped to the bone. In his mind, he'd, he had every line of the conversation already figured out, with every vindictive word his father would throw at him. For starters, he would be accused of being devious and too big for his boots not to say conniving. Next, he would be told he was the messenger of his cowardly brother and that he was weak and too stupid to make a proper life for himself. It wouldn't be the same if that old line wasn't given an airing. Jonah was quite used to the torrent of scorn that was regularly poured onto his teaching career. It's only those who can't get a proper job who teach, his father had said, when Jonah had graduated from university and announced that he was applying for a year's teacher training course. He didn't discuss it further with Gabriel, and certainly he didn't look to him for financial support. He paid his own way through college by working shifts in a meat processing factory, and as a consequence, hadn't been able to look a meat and potato pie in the eye since. That had been 13 years ago, and still Gabriel hadn't forgiven Jonah for settling for such a second-rate career.
Jonah always felt a chill run through him when he came home to Mermaid House. A knot of anxiety formed in the pit of his stomach with his desire to make his visit as short as possible. He tried to kid himself that it was the bleakness of the house and its remote situation that made him feel like this. But he knew it wasn't. It was the memories. Mermaid House was an unusual, almost whimsical design, with a tower, four wings and a central cobbled courtyard. It was built of locally quarried stone that had turned depressingly dark and dreary with the passing of time. Now, as Jonah drove through the wide stone archway, the rumble of his car engine was amplified. It bounced off the walls and came back at him louder than it normally did. It confirmed what he had suspected earlier that morning when he had driven to work that his exhaust was blowing. He parked next to his father's mud-splattered Land Rover in front of what had always been known rather ostentatiously as the banqueting hall. It boasted original timbers, trusses and a massive fireplace. Getting out of his car, he noticed that the tax disc on the Land Rover had expired and that the tread on one of the tyres looked borderline legal. He crossed the courtyard and found the back door unlocked. He knocked cursorily, let himself in, and they took a flyer over an old pair of boots lying on the floor. He pushed them to one side, called to his father and walked through to the rest of the house. He passed the laundry room, noting the piles of unwashed clothes, bedding and towels in front of the washing machine, and kept going past the gun room until he came to the kitchen. These days the mess seldom shocked him. It shocked him more that he had grown used to the conditions in which Gabriel was prepared to live. There was an unappetising smell of gone-off fish, and he located the source of this as an empty tin of pilchards in tomato sauce on the draining board. He went to throw it in the swing bin, but found that it was full to the brim. It was indicative of the scale of the problems at Mermaid House. No job was ever in isolation. There was always a knock-on effect. To change a light bulb, you had to find the stepladder. And to find the stepladder, you had to find the key to the cellar. And the key was anywhere but where it should be, on the row of hooks in the kitchen. It hadn't always been like this. When Val had been in her prime, she had run the house with military precision, determined against the odds to instil in the three children a sense of shared duty. It's a large house, so I would be grateful if you could all pull your weight, she told them. On the first day of their holidays, when they were home from school, she would line them up and go through the running order. Damson, I'd like you to do the dusting and polishing in the dining room. And Casper, you can clear out the ashes from the grate in the drawing room and bring in some fresh kindling. Jonah, I've put the silver on the kitchen table for you to clean. Why does he always get the easy jobs? Damson had pouted mutinously. Because he's the youngest. He's not as big and strong as the pair of you. Just as rebellious as his sister, Casper would argue frequently that their father was rich enough to have a host of servants to do the work. But Val would have none of it. We no longer live in an age of servants, young man. We have Mrs Harper to help us, but she is not a servant. Ignoring whatever scornful comment Casper would make, she would clap her hands and send them on their way. And always there would be the same music played at full volume while they did their chores. Even now, Jonah could never hear a piece of Gilbert and Sullivan without wanting to reach for the silver polish. The meticulous order that Val so prized was lost when she suffered the first of a series of minor heart attacks. As she slowly slipped away from them, she took with her the smooth running of the household. Mrs Harper, who was well past retirement age, handed in her notice and a succession of local cleaners proved unsatisfactory. The sheer size of Mermaid House overwhelmed them. Ten bedrooms and three bathrooms was more than they wanted to take on. It was more than any sane person would want to take on, thought Jonah, as he stood in the middle of the chaos. Suddenly he had the urge to hire the largest skip he could get hold of and throw everything into it. How tempting it was to clear the decks and start again. He would give his stubborn, sore-headed father the clean slate he needed. But he knew that that would never happen. Only a nuclear bomb would clear these particular decks. But it was a bomb of sorts that he'd come to drop. 
He called to Gabriel again and helped himself to an apple from the fruit bowl of fruit he religiously bought every week for his father and which Gabriel rarely touched, then wandered out of the hall. He checked the drawing room, the dining room and finally the library where the curtains were drawn to protect the shelves of books from being damaged by sunlight. But there was no sign of his father. He stood at the bottom of the stairs and shouted, his voice echoing in the musty emptiness of the high-ceilinged house. There was no answer. The irony was not lost on Jonah. Every week he did his father's shopping for him and tried to time his appearance at Mermaid House for when he knew his father would be in Deaconsbridge so that he could avoid speaking to him. But now he wanted to talk to him and he couldn't. Where was he? Perhaps he'd gone for a walk. Well, if he had, there was no point in looking for him. Jonah didn't have time to mount a search party. He would have to come back another day. To his shame, he felt relieved as he retraced his steps to the length of the house, knowing that, for now, he wouldn't have to go through with what Caspar had asked him to do. He was about to use his own key to lock the back door. Gabriel really shouldn't leave the house unlocked. When he thought better of it, his father might have forgotten to take a key with him. Outside, in the pleasantly warm sun, and taking another bite of the apple, Jonah looked at his watch and decided he had time to see to the balding tyre on the Land Rover. But when he checked the spare, he found that it was in an even worse condition. Sometimes there was just no helping Gabriel Liberty. Chapter 7 It was four days since Stella had left him, and while Archie wasn't entirely surprised by her departure, he had been taken aback by the way she'd gone about it. It was the coward's way out, and he'd never thought of Stella in that light. The note had been blunt and to the point. It seemed that the affair he'd thought was over had picked up again, and Stella had decided at last where her future lay. And it was not with Archie, the man to whom she'd been married for 26 years, and who had failed to give her the children she had always wanted. Indicating right, he pulled off the main road and turned sharply into the hospital car park. He felt angry. It was always Stella who was supposed to feel the loss of not having children. But what about him? Why hadn't his feelings been taken into account? After all, it was he who'd had to live with the knowledge that he wasn't man enough to become a father. He who had taken the jibes when Stella's disappointment turned to bitterness. He had wanted children too. But no one had thought he was bothered by his and Stella's incompleteness as a couple, and no one had thought to ask. Next to him, now that they were parked, his mother was struggling with her seatbelt. Here, love, he said, let me. He pressed the red button and released the strap. She straightened her hat and smiled at him. Ready now, she said. Ready, he smiled back. She had dressed specially for the occasion. A trip to the speech therapist was a big day out for her. Archie had been roped in as chief style guru. Pink or glue, she had asked, holding out two dresses as he sat on the edge of her bed, eating his cornflakes. Definitely the pink, he said, trying to sound decisive. A hint of dithering on his part and they'd never have got out of the house this side of sunset. It seemed to work and she held the dress against her in front of the long mirror. Then lowering it, she said, or maybe the, the, the... She squeezed her eyes shut, pursed her lips, and at the back of her mind, where some prankster was rewriting the English language for her, she located the word. She snapped her eyes open and said proudly, All the cheese! He processed carefully. If he gave the wrong answer, the limited supply of good words available to her this morning would shrivel to nothing. He gave the matter serious consideration before he tapped the air with his spoon. No, I still think the pink would be the best. Very Liz Taylor, when she was at her best. Shall I help you? He helped her now to take her seat in the hospital waiting room and could feel the heavy tiredness in her body. The short walk from the car park had sapped most of her strength, but it did nothing to dampen her desire to enjoy her big day out. She smiled at the woman opposite, who also looked as if she was dressed in her best party frock. She had overdone the makeup, though, and the red lipstick clashed with the frilly purple neckline. 
The man sitting next to her, presumably her husband, looked dog-tired, and Archie wondered what unearthly time the pair of them had got up to get ready for their appointment. But the woman didn't respond to the warmth of his mother's smile. Disappointed, Bessie turned to Archie, and, in a voice that should have been a whisper, she missed the mark by several decibels. She said, Cobbly cow. He tried not to laugh and was still trying to contain himself when it was Bessie's turn to see the young girl who was patiently teaching her to speak again. Though with a phrase as beautiful as cobbly cow, so much better than snobby cow, he wondered whether it wouldn't be more fun to teach the rest of the world to speak as Bessie did now. He left them to their phonetics and flashcards and went in search of a polystyrene-flavoured cup of tea that would scald the top layer of skin clean off his tongue. The vending machine was situated in a bright, airy space where pieces of artwork from the local comprehensive were displayed on the stark white walls. There was an atrium-style roof to this modern extension, opened by a local soap star last year, and it felt more akin to a fancy hotel than a hospital. Not that Archie had any first experience of fancy hotels. The nearest he had got to one was when he and Stella were celebrating their 24th wedding anniversary. He had planned it as a surprise. He let her think he'd forgotten about it. Then on the day, while she was getting ready for work, he had presented her with tickets for the train and a show in London. But it hadn't turned out the way he'd hoped it would. She was moosy and distant with him and found fault with almost everything. The train took too long, the hotel was too small, the food too expensive and the show too loud. During the journey home, he had wondered if everything would have been to her liking had she been with someone else. He kept the thought to himself, but soon he knew the answer. He found letters and a couple of photographs. He hadn't gone snooping, they'd been left casually in a drawer, not even covered up. It was as if she'd wanted him to find out, if she'd been hoping for a confrontation. He must have disappointed her. He simply carried on as though everything was normal, convincing himself that if if he ignored it, she would get it out of her system and things would soon be okay again. Plenty of marriages had glitches. It was all about riding the storm. After a while, he thought he'd done the right thing. She stopped inventing reasons to be out of an evening. There were no sudden trips to see her sister and the phone no longer rang with no one on the other end when he answered it. But she wasn't happy. If anything, she was worse, tearful or irrationally anger, angry. He almost felt sorry for her, imagining that her lover had decided to call a halt to the affair. Perhaps he, too, was married and hadn't wanted to jeopardise what he already had. Stupidly, Archie spent more time than was healthy putting together a background for this unknown man. Was he younger than Archie, better looking, funnier, more intelligent, rich? With the benefit of hindsight, he had seen nothing but a coward. Instead of wasting time dwelling on her lover, he should have been talking to Stella, making an effort to understand where he had gone wrong. But he'd left it too late. All the talking in the world wouldn't make things right now. She was gone, no doubt to this perfect man who understood her, who didn't didn't have an ageing mother to care for. He swallowed the last of his tea and suddenly felt very weary. How would he manage second best and look after Bessie on his own? She wasn't so bad at the moment, but he could see that in the future she would need a constant eye on her. He crumbled the empty cup, dropped it into the nearest bin and cursed himself for having taken advantage for Stella in the way that he had. In relying on her to be at home during the afternoons, she only worked mornings, he had felt that he was doing the right thing by his mother. Served him right that Stella had left him. He'd given her a gold-plated final straw. With ten minutes more before Bessie would be finished, he went for a stroll. He was just passing a couple of pretty nurses who were chatting about a hen party they'd been to last night when he caught sight of a face he recognised. It was that nice Indian doctor from the surgery in town, the one who was always so good with his mother. He was friendly without being overly familiar, which Bessie liked. She always used to say that if he had to undress for a doctor, the least he could do was look the other way, and Dr Singh was wonderfully courteous and proper with her. Archie went over to say hello. Touting for business, Dr Singh? Ah, Mr Merriman, how good to see you. Are you here with your mother? 
Yes, she's with a the speech therapist. It's slow going. Patience, Mr Merriman, she'll get there in the end. Remember what I told you. There's life after a stroke, so long as everyone involved pitches in. You just have to keep the faith. I know. Some days she's quite clear, but others I can't make head nor tail of what she's saying. So what brings you here? An errand of mercy. And here he comes right now. A tall, spectacularly grizzled man came towards them. A white dressing covered one of his eyes, but not the scowl that darkened the rest of his face. Bloody hours I've been stuck here and it's all your fault, you interfering little man. Not missing a step, Dr Singh was the epitome of politeness. Do you know Mr Liberty, Mr Merriman? Uh, no. Archie held out his hand. Pleased to meet you, Mr Liberty, he said affably. But when the other man made no attempt to shake it, he said, Well then, I ought to be getting back. Bessie will be wondering where I am. He turned to go. Behind him he heard, A bloody wasted time. Nothing that eye drops wouldn't have sorted, just as I told you. So aren't you the lucky one, Mr Liberty? After calling in at the shop and checking that Samson had everything under control, Archie took Bessie for a cream tea at the Mermaid Cafe, a treat to round off the day for her. We should do this more often, he said, when Shirley had served them with her customary good humour. She was a good sort, was Shirley. Nothing seemed to bring her down, not even the break-up of her marriage several years ago. He passed his mother a cup of tea, then set to work on the scones. He cut one in half, spread a dollop of strawberry jam on it, then topped it off with a layer of cream. But when he gave it to her, his heart fell. From her pained expression, he could see that he had assumed, assumed too much. He had treated her as an incapable invalid and robbed her of her dignity. I'm sorry, he murmured, appalled at his lack of thought. Would you rather do it yourself? She shook her head. I'm well, she said softly. Not ill, Archie. Of course you are, he agreed. You're absolutely fine. Now, tell me what the speech therapist said to you. Did she give you any gossip about that cobbly cow with too much lipstick? She brought her eyes together, as she always had when she rebuked him as a child. Serious, she said, pointing finger at him. No fish pies. Tell me the truth about Stella. What about? Why? He knew what she was asking, but he didn't want to go down that route. Not yet. When he had read the letter, Stella had left him. He had shoved it into his pocket and gone out to the kitchen to make a start on their supper. Minutes later, Bessie had appeared in the doorway and gone along with his knee to pretend that nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Helping her into bed that night, he'd made up a story that seemed to satisfy her. But now, four days on, she wanted to know what was going on. Why? she repeated. Stella's left me, love, he said. She's not coming back. I lied when I said she'd gone to her sister in Nottingham for a few days. For once, Archie was glad that his mother's speech was so limited. They sat in a long, awkward silence, their eyes cast down as they concentrated on their scones. Then he heard her say, Is it me? Left you because of me? He looked up and saw that his mother's eyes had filled with tears. One of her hands had started to tremble and crumbs were scattered around her plate. His heart went out to her. No, love, she didn't leave because of you. It was me. I should have been a better husband. He had to turn away. He knew exactly what she was thinking, that she had become a burden to him, and that she had wrecked his marriage. She was wrong. Chapter 8 When the phone rang, Jonah was standing on the top rung of the stepladder. He knew straight away who it was. Casper was the only person he knew who could make the telephone ring with menace and could be relied upon to do it at the worst possible moment. He put the brush between his teeth, picked up the pot of paint and made his descent. By the time he'd found the phone under the dust sheet by the side of his bed and had switched off the Hayden piano sonata... He could easily picture his brother's tight-lipped face at the other end of the line. 
just for the sheer hell of it, he let it ring three more times before he put the receiver to his ear. Liberty Escort Agency, how may I help you? Yeah, very funny, Jonah. Now, if you could act like an adult, like you're supposed to be, and quit fooling around like one of those idiots you teach, perhaps you could tell me how you got on. What did the old man say? Absolutely nothing. I find that hard to believe. Not a word. There was a pause. Oh, I know what happened. You didn't see him, did you? You lost your bottle just as I thought you would. You always were a coward. Casper's voice was hard. You could always talk to him yourself, Jonah said mildly. It is your idea. Look, we've been through this before. These days, you're the only one who can get anything sensible out of him. He'll listen to you. Exasperated, Jonah pushed a hand through his hair. Too late, he realised there'd been a smear of Windsor blue emulsion on his palm. He turned to look at himself in the mirror above the chest of drawers and saw that his wavy dark hair, the bane of his life as a boy, now had a blue streak running through it. Better than yellow, he thought, with a rueful smile. Jonah, are you still there? Sadly, yes, and I don't know why you think I'm any different from you and Damson. A loud snort told Jonah that if he didn't divert his brother, he would be subjected to the familiar lecture on what it was to be the hard-done-by-Casper-nobody-loves-me liberty. Actually, I did go and see him this morning, but he wasn't there. So what was wrong with trying again when you'd finished work? This might come as a surprise to you, but when I'm not carrying out your dirty work, I do have a life of my own. But you fetch and carry so well, brother dear. Who else can I rely on in this splintered family of ours? It's not a family you need, Casper, Jonah said. It's a battalion of henchmen. Now, if there's nothing else, I'm in the middle of decorating, so I'd appreciate it if you'd let me get on. Good God, why do you insist on living like a peasant? Get a genuine peasant in to do it for you. Casper, was there anything else? Yes, speak to Dad as soon as you can. Every day you botch this up is another day of... Well, never mind that, just do it. Back on the stepladder, Jonah had resumed painting his bedroom ceiling. If ever a child had been, built, had been born to upset the sibling apple cart, it had been him. Casper and Damson had never let him forget that his birth had precipitated their mother's death. As children, they had been cunning and willful, had taken pleasure in setting him up as the fall guy and enjoying the spectacle of him being punished. If anything went missing, you could bet your bottom dollar it would be found in his bedroom, hidden at the bottom of the wardrobe. If anything got broken, you could guarantee that he would be positioned right by the smashed window pane or the shattered vase. Their devious schemes worked every time. They would pretend they had decided to let him be a part of their coterie and like the fool he was, so desperate to be accepted, he would go along with whatever dare or initiation ceremony they felt inclined to put him through. He fell for it time and time again, hook, line and sinker. He was the perfect stooge, trailing behind in their contemptuous wake, needing their approval, wanting to be just like them the mysterious, all-powerful twins who were at the centre of their own universe, where, stupidly, he also wanted to be. That was before he became scared of them. Once, when they had said he could join in with their latest game, they'd put a blindfold around his head and shoved him into cold water. He was only six, and they said all he had to do was swim to the other side of the river. It had rained constantly for the last week, and the river was higher than usual. As the force of the water rushed pell-mell down the hillside, the strengthening swell had swept him away. He could still remember their laughter as they ran along the bank beside him, and it wasn't until he banged his head on a rock and began to scream that they hauled him out. They shook him hard, pulled his hair and slapped his face to make sure he didn't pass out, then marched him back up to the house. We found him down by the river, Casper told Val, causing trouble again. It was lucky for him that we happened to be passing, otherwise he might have died. Casper was the most convincing liar Jonah had ever come across, then or since. By the age of nine, he'd wised up and kept his distance from his brother and sister, shutting himself away in his room. But whenever they got the opportunity, they played their games on him. They would sneak into his room late at night when he was asleep and steal whatever was precious to him 
stamps, comics, books, pocket money. Gradually, though, he learned to outwit or second-guess them. He discovered that he was smarter than they were, and by the age of eleven he was spending more time in their father's library than anywhere else. He discovered that trying to gain Gabriel's approval and respect was infinitely more worthwhile than being accepted by Casper and Damson. Until then, his father had been little more than an occasional visitor in his life, forever away on business, immersed in his own affairs, an autocratic figure. But when Jonah showed an interest in the books Gabriel had collected over the years, the two almost connected. Jealousy caused the twins to step up their bullying campaign, but they soon found themselves in more trouble than they could have imagined. Late one night, Gabriel discovered them in his library, defacing two of his most highly prized first editions. Their plan had backfired. They were grounded for a month, their allowance was stopped, their combined birthday party cancelled, and they were put to work by Val to clean the attic. It was then that Val began to question the previous crimes Jonah was supposed to have committed. They never discussed any of these things as a family. That would have been far too open and communicative. Much better to sweep it under the mat and pretend it had never happened. On one occasion, aged 13, Jonah had behaved completely out of character. It only happened once, but it was such a shocking act of violence that, even now, memory made him flinch. He'd been away at school, and the bully of his year had picked on him once too often. He'd stolen a fountain pen Val had given Jonah for Christmas. Incensed, Jonah flung himself at the boy, pushed him to the floor and beat him mercilessly. With no teacher in the classroom, everyone else had left their desks and grouped around to watch the mild-mannered swat bashing the living daylights out of the boy who, in Jonah's mind, had become Casper and Damson rolled into one. But while he was hailed a hero by his peers, the headmaster was less inclined to praise him. Jonah was caned and made to write a five-page essay answering the question, which offers man the greater chance of survival, pacifism or violence? Ironically, his essay was so good that he was awarded a prize for it at the end of the term. If Jonah had a less than generous opinion of his brother and sister, the regard they held each other in could not have been higher. In Casper's view, Damson could do no wrong. But as far as Jonah could see, she had spent most of her adult life switching from one good cause to another with intermittent bouts of self-absorption. Of the three, she was the only one to have married. She was also the only one to have divorced twice, and lucratively so. She was currently going through what she called her centred space phase and was living in peace and harmony in a commune in Northumberland, which she had described as a self-help therapy centre in a handcrafted Christmas card to Jonah sent last year. This latest search for her inner self was just another in a long line of explorations from which she would doubtless emerge to plunge back into the hedonistic lifestyle she enjoyed. Men, partying, shopping and whatever else made her think she was happy. Jonah didn't think she had ever been truly happy. On the stroke of midnight, Jonah called it a day. It was handy living next door to a church. There was no danger of losing track of the time when the bells rang out every hour and slipped in a quick chime on the half hour too. He had moved into Church Cottage last August when he had come back to the area as head of history at Deaconsbridge High. Before then he'd been living over yonder border, as diehard Deaconites called it, in neighbouring Cheshire. He had been ready for a change and had followed his instinct when he had seen the post advertised. It had seemed the right thing to do, given that his father was now on his own, with little sign of Casper or Damson offering any help around the house. And it was the house that was at the bottom of Casper's insistence that Jonah speak to Gabriel. Casper could dress it up any way he liked, but Jonah knew his brother too well. Casper didn't give a damn about their father's welfare. All he was concerned about was getting his hands on the capital that would be released if Mermaid House was sold. Jonah had no idea what Casper did with the money he earned. He owned one of the most prestigious car dealerships in South Manchester and had to be ripping people off for a decent amount. But however much it was, it clearly wasn't enough. Jonah had dared to query this the other day when Casper had hinted that money from the sale would come in handy. 
He'd been told in no uncertain terms to keep his nose out of things he didn't understand. Money is hardly your area of expertise, Jonah, so butt out. Just convince the old fool that he needs to move into something smaller and we'll all be better off. Much of what Casper had said was true. Jonah wasn't a financial pundit and their father had reached an age when he might be better off living in a property a tenth of the size of Mermaid House. He'd been thinking the same thing ever since Val had died, but he'd never found the right time, or the courage, to broach it with Gabriel. Not when he knew how insincere and grasping it might sound to their father. It was annoying, though, that Casper's thoughts had coincided with his, albeit for different reasons. What his brother didn't know was that Jonah intended, if his father would listen to him, to make it clear that if Mermaid House was to be sold, Gabriel should not siphon off a penny of what it had brought to his children, to avoid inheritance tax, which naturally was the main thrust of Casper's argument for selling up now. Casper would capitalise on a third world disaster if he thought he could get away with it, and there were many things Casper had got away with over the years, just as he'd stolen from Jonah as a child, he had continued through adulthood to help himself to anything else to which he took a fancy. So far, Jonah had lost two girlfriends and a fiancé to his brother. Admittedly, the loss of the girlfriends had taken place during his teens, but Emily had been another matter altogether, and he wasn't sure that he could ever forgive Casper for what he had done. Downstairs in the kitchen... While he washed the paintbrush under the tap and squirted a dose of fairy liquid onto the bristles, Jonah wondered if a family as bitterly divided as his could ever be reconciled. Chapter 9 With Ned's help and with the aid of a simple device that turned the white plastic barrel into a mini garden roller, Clara was pushing their fresh supply of water across the dewy grass of the Happy Dale campsite towards Winnie. It was one of the many things about camper vanning that Clara enjoyed. The multitude of unexpectedly clever gadgets that made life a little easier. This was their fourth day on the road and already Clara and Ned considered themselves old hands at it. They were perfectly at one with the intricacies of their cassette toilet could turn a dinette seat into a double bed with the speed and professionalism of a Formula One pit stop, could knock up mouth-watering meals on the two-burner stove at the flick of a hand, and, perhaps more importantly, they could do it all without once feeling as though they were living on top of each other. It was extraordinary how quickly they had adapted to living life in miniature. It reminded Clara of when she'd been a little girl and had played constantly with her doll's house her father had made for her. She'd been fascinated with the scaled-down world he had created, and it was the same for her now with Winnie. Everything was so incredibly well-designed and appealed to her logical way of thinking and her need for order. As a child, she'd been ridiculously organised. Her mud pies were always neatly prepared. Her bedroom was tidier than any other room in the house. Her schoolwork immaculately presented and always handed in on time. Her social life thought out with every consideration given to when, how, where and with whom, and woe beside anyone who interfered with this carefully ordered infrastructure. At the age of ten, she had spent hours drawing cutaway sections of houses, each room in minute detail, and people joked that one day she would become an architect, or maybe an interior designer. When she expanded her repertoire to sketch the roads the houses occupied, then mapped out whole villages and communities of harmonious synchrony. They suggested town planning. Her brother accused her of being a control freak. But if Winnie appealed to Clara's desire for pigeonholed regularity, it was a joy to see how Ned too loved their new home, especially his bed over the cab. He would lie up there with Mermy and his battalion of cuddly toys, pretending to read to them from his favourite storybooks and Clara was relieved that, so far, he'd shown no sign of missing anything that he'd left behind. But, as Louise would have been quick to point out, it was early days yet. Much as Ned loved the bed to which he had to climb up, there was a disadvantage in the arrangement, which had come to light on their first night. At three in the morning, he'd woken needing the toilet. 
It was the kerfuffle of him sitting up, bumping his head, and letting out a cry that had woken Clara. It took her a few seconds to gather her wits, switch on the reading light, and climb up to him. Parting the curtains, she'd helped him down and carried him to the loo. He was so drowsy that she'd had him tucked in again and fast asleep before she was back in her own bed. But he'd always been a good sleeper, even as a baby. At two days old, he'd slipped straight into a comfortable, convenient routine of feeds and napping that had rendered his parents nostalgically envious. Why weren't you and Michael like this as babies, her mother had said, bending over the Moses basket and itching to smother her first grandchild with love as he slept on, his tiny hands balled into fists the size of walnuts, his lips quivering like butterfly wings. You both had me up at all hours, never gave me a minute's peace. Oh, look, he's opened his eyes. Do you think I could? Clara and her father had exchanged a smile. Go on, Mum, while I make us a cup of tea. He's all yours. And you can stop right there, young lady, her father had said. I will make the tea. And if I catch you moving just one inch from that chair, there'll be trouble. Better do as he says, Clara. You know what a tyrant he can be. For years it had been a family joke that his, her father was a tyrant. The truth was he was the biggest softy going and he had been particularly kind and loving with his grandson. Once Ned was walking and talking, her father had come into his own, reading to him, teaching him to do simple jigsaws and taking him to the park. Come on, my little pumpernickel, he would say, helping Ned into his hat and coat, then strapping him into his pushchair. Time for some man-to-man -man business down at the park. Let's go and feed the ducks. Clara knew that Ned's lack of a father tapped into her parents' old-fashioned instinct for a nuclear family, but she was happy to let her own father fill the void created by the man who could never be in Ned's life. He did it so well, never overstepping the mark, just quietly providing that indefinable extra for which Clara would always be grateful. In the last few days, she'd noticed a change in Ned. He was fast becoming what her mother would describe as a quite the little man. He was forever insisting that he help her with everything he could. He particularly liked doing the washing up. He would stand at the small sink on the step that was supposed to be used for getting in and out of the camper van, up to his elbows in sudsy water. The job took a lot longer than if she did it herself, but it was such a pleasure to see him so involved that she didn't have the heart or inclination to stop him. And what did it matter how long anything took to do? They were in no hurry now. Since leaving home on Sunday, they had slowly made their way north. Their first night had been spent at a campsite in Stratford-upon-Avon, where the following day they had immersed themselves in all things Shakespearean and more to Ned's liking had visited a museum devoted to teddy bears. They'd seen the original sooty and Clara, Clara had reminisced about her first pantomime when she'd sat in the front row and been soaked by sooty and sweep with water pistols. From Stratford, they moved into the West Midlands, taking in Cadbury World and the Museum of Science and Industry in Birmingham. Ned had been as pleased as punch when the guide picked him out from the crowd to press the button to start the steam engine. He was happier still when they left an hour later with a model of it, and he had spent the evening back at Winnie explaining enthusiastically to Clara how it worked. Until now, they had decided together where to go each day while curled up in bed and flicking through touring books and maps. But their next port of call was to be a surprise for Ned, which Clara hoped he would enjoy. When they had packed everything neatly away and had pay paid the man in the campsite office, they were ready to go. Chocks ahoy, said Ned, as he did each morning when they set off. She smiled. She'd given up telling him it was chocks away. Chocks ahoy sounded just fine to her. The people on the next pitch waved goodbye. They were an interesting couple in their mid-fifties who called themselves full-timers. They lived all year round in their camper van, which they had personalised by painting Ron's name on the driver's door and Eileen's on the passenger's. Over a glass of wine late last night, when Ned was asleep, they had given Clara their list of the top ten campsites in Britain. They were out of the way, not always listed in the touring guides. It was to one of these that Clara was heading today. 
Ron and Eileen had also shared with her how they had become full-timers after giving up secure jobs. They'd spent the last two years fruit-picking in the summer and early autumn, then hooking up with fellow full-timers and travelling south to Spain and Tunisia for the winter. Now, as she tooted Winnie's horn at them, Clara wondered what Louise and the rest of her friends would make of Ron and Eileen. With the map spread open on his lap, his elbows resting on the armrests at either side of him, and his finger planted firmly on the streak of blue that was the motorway they were following, Ned looked every inch the seasoned navigator. That the map was upside down was neither here nor there. By Clara's reckoning, they had about 30 miles of motorway driving left before they would strike out cross-country. Shall we stop at the next service station to stretch our legs, she asked. Ron and Eileen had said that if there were free facilities to be had, it was their duty to take full advantage of them, rather than waste their own resources. Nell looked up from the map. When Nana says that, Grandad says his legs don't need stretching. He says he's tall enough already. Clara smiled. It's called a euphemism. He tried the word out for himself. Euphemism. What does that mean? Well, it's when we use a word or phrase to disguise what we're really saying, to make it sound more polite. I was really asking you if you wanted to stop and go to the toilet. He thought about this. Like when Nana asks me if I want to spend a penny. Exactly. Euphemism, he said again. Ned's vocabulary was quite advanced for his age, and Clara put this down to having spent more time with adults than children. Neither her parents nor her friends had ever talked down to him. They had always treated him as a mini-adult, and he had responded accordingly, absorbing information at a phenomenal rate. With so much adult company around him, she had dreaded him turning into a precocious brat, but thankfully there seemed little likelihood of that. After they had euphemistically stretched their legs and spent their pennies, they joined the motorway once more, and with the map the right way round, Ned looked at it hard and asked where they were going. She gave him a sideways smile. You're not catching me out that easily. I told you it's a surprise. Wait and see. But will I like it? Surprises aren't always nice. I'll make you a promise. If you don't like it, we'll move on somewhere else. An hour later, with the M6 behind them, Clara took the B5470 out of Macclesfield and found herself driving through rolling hills of lush green farmland, crisscrossed with the threadwork of dry stone walls. It came as such a surprise that she slowed down to take a better look. It was beautiful, just as Ron and Eileen had said it would be. If we could get the work up there, that's where we'd spend our summers, Ron had said. Believe me, you'll love it. It's terrific walking country. But it wasn't hill walking that had drawn Clara to this part of the Peak District. It was what, according to the guidebooks, had also drawn Victorian day trippers from the neighbouring industrial towns and villages. The chance to see a mermaid. Not a live one, but an underground cavern that claimed to have a rock formation that looked just like the real thing and granted wishes for those prepared to dip their fingers into the clear still water of its pool. Given Ned's love of mermaid, who was currently in his hand, and his desire to meet a real one, this was probably as near as she could get to fulfilling a dream for him. They drove on, the road becoming steeper, the houses fewer, and the scenery even more stunning as it stretched before them beneath a picture-postcard blue sky with puffy white clouds. Suddenly, making her jump, Ned pointed Mermy at the window to his left and cried, Mummy, look at all the sheep on the green mountains. Those are what the people around here call hills, Ned. Even that big one over there? Clara smiled. A mere Brussels sprout. Perhaps later on our trip we'll go up to Scotland and see some real mountains. I like it here. Is this my surprise? Not quite. Now, I'm going to have to concentrate on the road. I'm looking for a sign that says Deacon's Bridge. Shout out if you see anything with a big D on it. The road climbed higher and higher, until eventually they reached the summit of a hill. Dropping into a lower gear, Clara took the descent steadily, with extra care on the tight bends. 
their first sighting of Deaconsbridge revealed a small town nestling in the shallow dip of a valley. From a distance, it looked a soft shade of industrial grey, with rows of terraced houses tucked into the slope of the hillsides, their uniformity broken by a scattering of old mills and stately chimneys. A church with an elegant spire stood self-consciously to one side of the town, surrounded by a cemetery, whose gravestones seemed to flow out into the expanse of moorland behind. As a final resting place, Clara thought it was pretty spectacular. With a queue of cars itching to overtake them, they trundled ever nearer, and just as the road began to level, narrow and guide them to the centre of the town and its one-way system, Ned bounced in his seat and let out a loud, excited cry. Look, a mermaid! And there's another! Over there, Mummy! There's lots of them! Once Clara had squeezed Winnie into the pay-and-display car park, no mean feat given how busy the small town was and the lack of space available, she could see that Ned was right. Deacon's Bridge was awash with mermaids. Almost every shopfront in the market square where they were parked had a sign depicting a mermaid, and each one was different. They ranged from shy lovelies, coyly submerged in water, showing just a modest hint of scaly tail, to pert, blonde, bathing bells, posing on rocks, and buxom page three beauties flaunting themselves shamelessly. But the sign Clara liked best was the one above the antiquarian bookshop, which portrayed a sylph-like creature reclining in an armchair reading. The spectacles were a nice touch, she thought. Across the square and opposite where they were parked, a sign showed a rosy-cheeked mermaid wearing an apron and holding a large wooden spoon. It was a convivial, inviting sight. Welcome to Deacon's Bridge, Ned, Clara said. Ready for some lunch? Chapter 10 The Mermaid Cafe was busy, and at first glance Clara thought they would have to try somewhere else. But in the furthest corner, and beneath a large mirror flanked by two prettily stenciled mermaids on the wall, she could see a waitress clearing a table that had just been vacated by a couple of intimidating-looking leather-clad bikers, now queuing at the counter to pay their bill. One smiled at Ned, who stared at his ponytail, earrings and the shiny studs on his fringed jacket, then smiled back, revealing two rows of perfect milk teeth. The waitress continued to add dirty plates to a tray already stacked high with an assortment of crockery and metal teapots, and for a few moments Clara and Ned were forced to stand with the two bikers. The one who had smiled at Ned did so again, this time adding a wink. Then he turned to Clara. He's a cute-looking kid, he said. A dead ringer for his mum or his older sister, perhaps. If you want a worthwhile tip, he went on, we can recommend the chef's special. You can't go wrong with it. Insider knowledge, said his friend, tapping his long straight nose. He reached into a small basket of lollipops for younger diners and gave one to Ned. Here, have this on us. Ned's face lit up. Thank you, he said. You'd better keep it for when you've had your lunch, though. We don't want any trouble from your big sister. Clara was about to add her thanks to Ned's when the waitress came over. Sorry to keep you waiting, dear, she said. But these leather joy boys make so much mess. She gave the two bikers a broad grin. The one who had spoken first to Clara gave the waitress red cap a light flick. Mum, I've told you before, keep the wisecracks for me when we're at home. Do you want me to take the tray through to the back for you? No, Robbie, I want you to pay your bill and sling your hook. You're cluttering the place up. Now, are you or are you not going to make a start on the spare room for me this evening? I've got the wallpaper and paste for you. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Thanking the two young men for the lollipop, Clara shepherded Ned towards their table and quickly before anyone else nipped in ahead of them to claim it. Those men were nice, said Ned, settling himself into his chair and placing his unexpected gift on the checked plastic tablecloth. He propped Mermy against a bowl of sugar. They were, weren't they, she replied, letting him get away just this once with pilfering a sugar cube. 
She could see that he was now wondering how to slip it into his mouth without her noticing, so she bent down to her bag on the floor. She thought about the two young men, one of whom had treated her to some friendly flattery. He must have been at least ten years her junior, big sister indeed. Catching sight of herself in the mirror above Ned's head, she supposed the newer haircut made her look younger. She'd gone for a radical change in Stratford, deciding that her shoulder-length hair would be a pain to take care of while they were away. In the salon, everyone had agreed that the new style took years off her, that her dark hair now framed her small oval face perfectly and accentuated her brown eyes. She turned away from the mirror and with the two bikers, who admittedly had not been her type, still on her mind, asked herself when had been the last time a man had paid her an unexpected compliment. She couldn't remember and wondered when she'd become so unaware or immune to male charm. Since Ned had been born, she'd had little time, inclination or opportunity to seek out a boyfriend, although there had been one or two skirmishes, in particular a disagreeable incident on an industrial relations course 18 months ago. Then a pushy type with groping hands and gin-soaked breath had tried his luck with her in the bar one night. She'd blown him clean away. What makes you think an intelligent woman like me would be interested in a prat like you. Now push off before I throw my drink in your face. It wasn't that she didn't feel comfortable with Wen. Far from it. She usually preferred their company to that of a crowd of women. But she knew that to embark upon a series of going-nowhere relationships would do her no good. Also, she didn't want to confuse Ned by bringing home a succession of men. And, perhaps more importantly... She had a very real fear of accidentally getting pregnant again. Not that she'd ever regretted having Ned. She loved him just as much as if she had planned his conception down to the last detail. Through the cafe window, she watched the pair of swaggering lads in their leathers cross the road to the car park where two powerful-looking motorbikes were waiting for them, their well-polished chromework glinting in the afternoon sunshine. She watched them strap on their helmets then heard the throaty roar of the engines, and though she had never before had any desire to sit astride anything more dangerous than a tricycle, she thought she could detect a change in her view now. Goodness, less than a week on the road, and she was considering a wind-in-the-hair experience. She plucked the menu from its wooden holder and saw that the chef's special they had recommended was not a bodybuilding tough boy three-pounder burger, but a vegetarian lasagna. What are you smiling at, Mummy? She raised her eyes from the menu. Myself, Ned. Now, what would you like to eat? They feasted on sausages, beans and chips, followed by the best bakewell tart Clara had ever tasted. When she commented on this to the waitress, Biker Robbie's mum, she was told, I'll tell my sister that. She'll be well pleased. It's an old family recipe. Is this a family business then? No, it's just a coincidence that we work together. Are you here for the day or staying longer? The weather's supposed to be breaking by the weekend, so you'd best do your walking sooner rather than later. Is that what everyone does around here, walk? That and go down the cavern to see the mermaid. To be honest, there's not a lot else to do. Ned leaned forward in his seat. A mermaid? Is it real? The waitress's eyes flicked over Mermy on the table. She sucked in her breath. Well, now, it's as real as you want it to be, I suppose. But if you've come to see it, you're too early. It doesn't open for another week. The tourist season round here hasn't got into full swing yet. You could always go across to Castleton or down to Buxton. Between them, they've got more caverns than they know what to do with. Do they have mermaids? No, my fine fellow. It's only us that can boast something as special as that. They left the cafe unsure what to do next. If the mermaid cavern wasn't open for another week, should they move on somewhere else and come back? Or stay put and use Deacon's Bridge as a base for visiting the surrounding area? Keeping her options open, Clara decided they would inspect the campsite Ron and Eileen had raved about and take it from there. She put this to Ned as she unlocked Winnie and stood back to let out the fuggy warmth that had built up inside the van while they'd been having lunch. 
But now that Ned had heard about the mermaid cavern, he clearly didn't want to move on. If we don't like the campsite, he said anxiously, climbing into his seat, we could find another, couldn't we? If that's what you'd like to do, then yes. She started the engine, reached for the map, then regretted not having thought to ask their friendly waitress for directions to the Hollow Edge View campsite. It wasn't mentioned in the Touring Parks magazine she had used so far on the trip, but Eileen had said that it was somewhere off the Hollow Edge Moor Road. The road, or what Clara thought was the right road, was marked on the map, and with hope rather than solid conviction, she manoeuvred Winnie out of the Market Square car park and went in search of a pitch for the night. Nearly an hour had passed before she gave up. This is ridiculous, she said, exasperated, when they found themselves yet again on irritatingly familiar ground. We've been up and down this road so many times we're on first-name terms with all the sheep. I'm sure they're laughing at us behind our backs. Sheep don't laugh, Ned said seriously. They go, bah! And I'll go bahing mad if I don't find this wretched campsite. I could also do with going to the loo. I'll just drive down this handy little track and park up. Ignoring the private no-entry sign turned out to have been a mistake. The handy little track was longer and narrower than Clara had expected, and with dry stone walls almost touching Winnie's sides, there was no space to turn round. She had no choice but to keep going until it either branched off into another road or offered her the opportunity to do a ten-point turn. Reversing was not a viable proposition. It was the only trick of driving a camper van that she hadn't yet mastered. However, as mistakes went, it presented them with some of the best views they'd seen so far, and confirmed what Clara had read in the guidebook last night, that Deaconsbridge, sandwiched as it was between the dark peak of Derbyshire and its southern white peak counterpart, was home to an interesting combination of the two. Way off in the distance, and after checking the map, she could see the bleak, wind-swept moor of Kinder Scout to the north. Referring to the map again, she could see that if she carried on along this road, they would eventually come to a belt of trees and a dwelling called Mermaid House. It looked as though the road widened sufficiently by the trees to allow her to turn and drive back to join the main road once more. Her guesswork proved right, and in the shelter of the trees, she brought Winnie to a halt. Time to stretch my legs, she said, smiling at Ned, as she climbed out of her seat to go through to the toilet. When she came out, Ned said, Can we go for a paddle? I can see a bridge over a stream, and there might be some fish we could catch for our tea. They'll have to be very lazy fish, the type we can catch with our bare hands. He slipped out from the seat. It's easy, I saw it on the television. This man had a stick and he watched until the fish came right up to him and then he... Yes, I get your drift. She interrupted, not wanting the gory details. Couldn't we just shake hands with them and invite them to a fish supper? He rolled his eyes. Fish don't have hands, mummy. You sure about that? What about octopuses? I thought they had eight hands. Now you're being silly. Everyone knows they're called testicles. She laughed. Tentacles, Ned. Come on, my little genius. Let's see if there's a nice bit of smoked salmon just waiting to make our acquaintance. But it will have to be quick. I really do want to find that campsite before the light goes. Taking a rolled up towel with them, they approached the bridge and the length of river Ned had spied. It twisted along the lower edge of the screen of trees, tumbled down the slope under the bridge and gaining speed gushed on further down the hillside. It'll be cold in there, Clara said, looking doubtfully at the clear shallow water as it rushed over the stones. Wouldn't you rather play poo sticks? Beside her, Ned was already sitting on the grassy bank and tugging at his laces. We could play that after. Help me, please, Mummy, this one's in a knot. She untied the lace for him and rebuked herself for sounding so old and boring. Where was the spirit of adventure that had brought her here in the first place? Despite the warmth of the spring sunshine, the water was icy cold, just as Clara had predicted. It made them both gasp and squeal as they dipped in their toes. They rolled up their jeans and bravely went in deeper. Clara held Ned's hand as they waded out. And now that she couldn't feel her toes, she joined in the game of looking for their supper. 
Do you think there are sharks here, Ned? Shh, he whispered. I can see something. He let go of her hand, bent down to the water, cupped his hands and made a sudden scooping movement. I've caught something, he, he cried. He peered through the gaps between his fingers. Amazed, she lowered her head to see what he had. He shrieked with delight and splashed her face. Fooled you! Why, you little monkey! For that, you can have a taste of your own medicine. The water fight was noisy and spectacular and left them both drenched. Shivering but still laughing, they slipped on their shoes and went back to Winnie to change into some dry clothes. They were soon warm again and just as Clara was about to make them a drink, tea for her and blackcurrant juice for Ned, they heard an engine. Ned, who was sitting on the driver's seat, stuck his head out of the window. It's a car, he said, a green one. It's got two men in it and it's stopped behind us. They're getting out. Clara decided it was time to investigate. After all, she had ignored that private no-entry sign. Maybe the owner had come to move them along. She stepped outside and didn't like what she saw. Two lads of about the same age as the bikers came towards her. One had a baseball bat and was smacking it against one of his palms. They both looked her over. She swallowed every instinct in her, screaming that these two meant trouble. She moved back a pace to shield Ned, who was still leaning out of the window. Get down, she whispered, turning her head to the side, and don't say a word. They came in close, and one on either side of her, they pushed her hard against the driver's door. They smelt of sour beer and stale cigarette smoke. Please, she said, conscious of Ned behind her, and their gaze flickering from her to him. Just take what you want and leave us alone. Outwardly, she was doing her best to appear calm, but inwardly, she was frantic. They both laughed, and a coarse, fleshy hand stroked her throat. For a split second, she considered bringing her knee up into the youth's groin. But as the hand began to exert more pressure on her windpipe, squeezing it painfully, she heard another man's voice say, Take your hands off that woman and get the hell out of here. The grip loosened. Twisting her head, Clara saw an elderly man dressed in a flat cap and a waxed jacket coming towards them. A patch covered one of his eyes and raised to the other was a double-barrelled shotgun. Her legs began to wobble and she hoped to God that the old man knew what he was doing with it. The gun still held high, he drew nearer. And do it before I lose my patience and blast both your heads off! The voice that had started with a low warning rumble had now pitched itself forward into a snarl of intent. Go on, get out of here! terrifying ordeal mean the end of their adventures? Who is their rescuer? Does Ned get to see the mermaid? Tune in next time to find out. Or if you just can't wait, why not borrow the book from your local library? Thanks for listening to Read Me A Story. See you next time.